Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Uh, so we are on Mark 7 through 9, Luke 9, and Matthew 15 through 17, essentially. <clears throat> a lot of some of the same stories. Kind of the, the thrust of the theme, um, and it's been a, a while, obviously, um, but last time we were together, we were looking at, at John, and John was talking about how after the the loaves and fishes miracle with the Jews, that there were a group of people who sort of followed Jesus even around Galilee and uh, around the sea, and and they followed him over and they said, give us more bread, you know, do what you did before. And he went into a long sort of discussion with them, trying to help them see past just the physical need to say, you know, it's great, but you're not really here about the miracles. You're not getting the point of the miracles, which is who I am that I am the bread, that I am everything you need. And you just want more, more of the sort of the perks of the miracles themselves. And, and they have this long discussion with them. And, and he keeps saying, I'm the bread of life. And they bring up the manna and he says, I'm the manna. And then he, he says, you know, trying to make his point, he says, it's like you have to eat my flesh. And, and then they freak out and say, he's encouraging cannibalism and, he just really doubles down um, in the way he does kind of as a parable to say, look, if you want to understand this, you will. But if you don't, that's fine. You're just going to be confused um, and uh, continues to, to, to push the envelope. And as he does so, it causes a number of those who are just there just for the free meal, so to speak. He, it causes them to kind of back off. They're not really interested in a Messiah. They're just interested in what they can exploit the uh, ministry of Jesus for for themselves. And so he he kind of is starting to push the envelope a little bit. Um, he's been serving everybody and ministering to everybody, and the crowds have been getting larger and larger and larger. And it's like from this moment forward, he begins to push it a little bit. He begins to challenge the conceptions really strongly in ways that the crowd begins to winnow a bit, um, to the point where even I think the last time we were together, even he asked Peter, are you guys going to go too? And Peter was like, no, we don't. We don't have anywhere else to go. We believe that you are the bread of life. We believe that in you are the words of life. And so this whole kind of question of are you just are you just kind of surfacey or are you really trying to understand what's really happening here? You know, are you are you looking for a God who's just about the the surface or are you looking for real spiritual realities? Matthew and Mark are going to actually also follow that up, but in a different way than John did. They're going to show how Jesus in his ministry begins to comment on those things with the Pharisees as well. So, but you'll notice throughout tonight, depending how far we get, really, regardless of how far we get, you'll notice that he successively pushes the envelope. He keeps he keeps challenging things just a little bit more. He's not giving the apostles a chance to be really comfortable um, at this point. He keeps them off balance a little bit, I think, um, be, and and is really kind of moving the needle. There is a there is a sense that the pace is picking up, that we're getting somewhere significant. Something is about to happen, and he's trying to prepare them for that the best he can and begin to push them forward to understand what his ministry is really about. And that's kind of where we are. That's what we're going to see in, in Mark here. Um, so Mark chapter 7 starts like this. It says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Uh, by the way, I was going to mention this. It's not 100% clear, but if you follow kind of the chronology of Jesus mourning John the Baptist, which is where we started, he was trying to get away to mourn John the Baptist, and people kept coming into him for miracles, and then he tried to get away, and then the big crowd came, and then he fed the crowd, so they stick around even longer. 
Then he sent the apostles away in the boat so he could get some time alone. And he does spend some time alone and grieving, but it doesn't sound like he sleeps that night either because it says he prays and then he notices the apostles are having trouble on the water. So he walks across the water. Then he gets to the other side and he's talking with everybody there and he goes into that, that big uh, kind of discussion that we talked about in John. It's possible he still has not really had a good night's rest or any rest at all. Um, it depends. The chronology is not clear enough to know that for sure, um, but it comes up, it may come up tonight. So I, I mentioned that, that, that he may be, humanly speaking, very tired. I don't think that uh, means he's going to sin like it does to the rest of us, um, but, uh, but it's just something I throw out there. Anyway, here we go. So there, it says the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing, washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. It is important to understand, and the and Mark is even making it clear here. I mean, he doesn't know he's making it clear in this way, but he is. That this is not sanit this is not washing of hands like we think of washing of hands. This isn't when it says their hands were defiled. They don't know about germs. They don't know about bacteria. This is not the idea that they're they're going to actually make themselves sick. This is the idea that there is certain ceremonial washings that God called. Now you can argue that God implemented these precisely because he understood hygiene in ways they didn't. That's possible. But from their perspective, this is all just ceremonial. It's religious in nature. It's tradition. And that's what Mark makes clear in the parentheses. He says the Pharisees did this. They not only washed their hands, but they washed all the pots and the pans. And it's about a, a spiritual cleanness or a spiritual uncleanness. And so that's what they're concerned about with Jesus. They say, your apostles don't do this, this ritualistic washing of hands before they eat. They don't do this ritualistic cleaning of the pots and the pans and the dishes before they eat. Um, why, why do you not make them do that? So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? That's really their concern. It's not hygiene. It's why don't they follow the tradition of the Jewish elders? Um, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he, that is Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. He's going to give specifics, but this is the, this is the point that he's making with them. They're not concerned about what God wants. They come to Jesus. They, they're, they're showing this sort of self-righteousness. They're saying, hey, why aren't they following the traditions of the elders? But Jesus knows in their heart, they're not concerned about what God wants. And in fact, he says, you have this tendency, you have this fine way, he says, you have this tendency to lay aside what really God has commanded in order to serve the traditions that you're comfortable with. So you're not really interested in what God really wants. You're just interested in the traditions you're comfortable with, that you're used to, that, that you're kind of have become master of, because those are the ones you can be really good at, because you know how they work. Then he goes on and gives some examples. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. So God says, you know, what, what's one of the really big commands in the Old Testament is how you look at your mom and dad, how you treat them, how you honor them. Do you, do you respect them? Do you, do you see them as worthy of your honor? He says, but you say, 
If anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Corban is this financial vow that some people would make. So if somebody, so for example, let's say that you received, uh, you, let's say you've, you've, uh, you get an, a refund from the IRS and you say to God, with my refund this year, I am going to give it to Focus Church. And I say, great, that's what Jesus is saying you should do here. That's it, I'm done. No, that's not at all true. You, you get this IRS refund and you say, with this money, I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to give it to this charity or I'm going to give it to this church or I'm going to give it to, you know, whatever it is. That is, I, I commit it to you. Lord, I promise I will give this money to you. And then suddenly when you receive the money, your father or your mother grows ill and you know that you have the money to actually help them, to, to get them the treatment they need, to pay for their care. Well, Jesus is saying, if this is what happens, that the Pharisees would say the thing to do is to honor your money to God, is to honor your 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 uh, vow that you made to God. And Jesus is saying you got that backwards, because G God said He cares about your father and mother, and you should be honoring them. And even if you made a vow, which other were other places, Jesus says, be careful about vows because this exact kind of thing can happen. But He says other, you know, even if you made a vow. God, it would be honoring to God. It would be dedicating it to God to take care of your own parents. That's not in violation of your vow. It's just a different way to do it. And you can see pretty transparently that the reason the Pharisees want you to do it the other way is kind of like I joked, that they are the they are the focused church. The money will benefit them in one way or another if it sort of goes to the temple, right? If it goes towards the religious establishment, they're going to benefit from it. And so it's really selfish on their part. But the bottom line is God says, so you have this tradition called Corbin, and you put that over this vow of this command of God to take care of your parents, and you actively push people away from the actual concerns of God towards the own your own human traditions. And you have no problem, you know, ignoring what's really important to God as long as it fits in with your traditions. So to their in answer to their question, why don't your apostles follow the traditions? His answer is because your traditions are not really centered in what God wants. And you have this real knack for just focusing on what you're comfortable with and what you're used to. And he's, then he says it this way. This is the summary statement. Then thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So this is just one example, but Jesus says you do this all the time. I, I have a suspicion at least for me, and I'll let you think for yourself, but I suspect it's true for a lot of us, that if we really pay attention, we'll notice that this is a reasonable indictment, probably many times of us as well, that we use scripture to support what we like, and we ignore what we don't. That is just, I think, a temptation. It's a tendency we have, that when there's a scripture that that fits the traditions, the understanding that we have, then we're all, we're all for it, and we stand upon the scripture and say, that's what's most important. But when it doesn't fit with our current traditions, our whatever our particular church traditions are, or family or whatever, when it doesn't fit with that, it's a lot easier for us to ignore it in favor of our traditions. And I, I think I think it's 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 important that we're always aware of that temptation. I think I think it's important that we're always saying, you know, why why am I so rigid about this tradition? Is it at this moment, is it really important? Do I really need to cling to it? Or is there something else more important here? 
And the reason I'm kind of going into this so long here is because this is laying the groundwork. As I mentioned, Jesus is beginning to push the envelope, and this is kind of the beginning. So he starts to shove against the tradition a little bit. And if the apostles are paying attention at all, they're doing what I just did. And they're saying, do we do that too? You know, now they might not be paying attention because sometimes they're not. And maybe they're just thinking, yeah, we don't do that. We don't wash our hands. But hopefully they're paying attention and they're thinking, yeah, do we do that too? Do we sometimes, are there certain things that we're comfortable with and we miss what God is really saying? Um, because he's about to give them examples of that, uh, a couple right in a row that I think he wants them to begin to see. Oh, we're going to have to change our traditions, our understandings too. So I think this is this is kind of the flow that Jesus is getting beginning to to push against things. He's already done this with the whole bread and my body's the bread and all that. He's already begun to make people uncomfortable. He's just pushing that envelope further. He's he's really now at a point, and it's important to notice he hasn't done this the whole time and he doesn't do it all the time. So people who think this is all there is to ministry are wrong. But this is a moment in Jesus's ministry where he is okay making people uncomfortable. And he knows he's going to have to in order to get them ready for what's about to happen. Um, again, Jesus called the crowd to him. So here the Pharisees ask this question. He's making a big teachable moment out of it. He's going to teach the whole crowd as a result of it. He says, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by getting into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Your traditions, your even your obedience, they don't make you clean or unclean. Our corruption, is, says Jesus, is more than skin deep. It's, it's from inside. And even this is a push against traditions because the, the Old Testament law does talk a lot about external things and how those external things can make us clean or unclean. But I think as we've gone through the Old Testament, we've seen that never at any point was God really negating the fact that it is our it is our own sin, it is our own internal desires that really get in the way, that are really the issue. Um, and so that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. You're not made unclean by that leper that you touch or that food that you eat or the way that you wash uh, anything. You are you are already unclean. <laughs> what makes you unclean comes from inside. So the Pharisees can do everything they want uh, to be clean on the outside, but that doesn't guarantee they're clean on the inside. There is a moment, it's either already happened or it happens later. I think it happens later where Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, which is a really fascinating word. And what that really means is you take a tomb and you clean it up on the outside so it looks really beautiful. But what's on the inside of a tomb? Well, deadness and corpses and decay and corruption. And this is what he accuses the Pharisees of being, really, really spotless on the outside and dead on the inside. He says at another point, you wash the outside of the cup and leave the inside dirty. Um, even with their own traditions. He's like, you're, you're, you're missing the point. So um, this, is, this is where he's beginning to push. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. So they come up to him and they're like, well, what, what are you saying that nothing? And what's funny is this is barely a parable, right? I mean, I'm not even sure it is a parable. He says, he says nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them doesn't sound like a parable to me. It sounds like a statement, but I think it is so challenging to the apostles that they're hoping it's a parable. <laughs> they're like, well, maybe, maybe he didn't really mean what he said. Maybe he just kind of meant something like that. It was a metaphor. He didn't really mean that we are defiled from what's inside us. That can't possibly be what he meant. And so it says they asked him about this parable, and Jesus says, are you so dull? I, the word dull, by the way, I don't, again, like we've talked about a lot of times, I don't think he's insulting them. I think he's just asking, are you still 
finding this hard to understand, the idea that corruption comes from inside. Do you really not know that? Are you not really aware of that? That's not so foreign to the Jewish mindset. They understood that, I think. You know, they, 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 Proverbs said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and I think there's been a lot of indications. You know, David prayed a lot about purifying my heart. You know, I think this is not really a foreign idea to the Jews. It's not like they had no concept of an internal struggle of corruption. Um, but but it's just, there's something about this that Jesus is pushing back. And he's, and he's really, you know, is he saying that all food is clean? That is a huge push. You know, that's a huge question of their tradition. So I think it's just, it, there's so much invested and implied in this statement that they want him to explain it. And really, he has no explanation. He's like, it was pretty much a clear, straightforward statement. I kind of just meant what I said. You know, are you are you really, you know, so dull? I'm just pointing out your reluctance to let tradition go. I'm just pointing out your confusion about where cleanness and uncleanness comes from. And again, I want you to bear in mind, he's about to enter Gentile territory. And so he's about to push their understanding of who the Gentiles are. And that's where I think a lot of this is coming from as well. Not just the Pharisees, but he wants to begin to rattle their cages about what, what it means to be clean or unclean. Because right now, if you're a Jew, you're automatically more clean than a Gentile. And I think he's trying to say, are you though? You know, is that because of your tradition? Uh, because on the inside, you're pretty much the same as the people we're about to go see. Uh, he goes on, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? So it's kind of funny. They're like, explain the parable. And he says, well, he just repeats it. <laughs> he just says, don't you, don't you get it? What you eat doesn't defile you. And then he goes on and he makes it really specific and literal. For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and then out of the body. He's like, look, what you eat isn't, isn't making you unclean. It's not sticking in your heart. It's not making you corrupt in your morals, in your, in your soul, in your heart. And in fact, it goes into the stomach and then it leaves. It doesn't even stay in your stomach. And Mark goes on to say, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. It's interesting that Mark adds this, and it, it's relevant to remember if you don't, or, or to know if you don't already know, that when we get to the book of Acts, Peter is going to have a vision in which God actually says to Peter, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Um, and so it may be, as Peter is talking to Mark, he's like, oh, now I remember, even when we were apostles, Jesus was already saying this to us. I didn't get it till the vision, but Jesus was already making this point to us. And in the same way the vision in Acts is actually about the Gentiles, I think so also a lot of this is, is about the Gentiles. It's about tradition, but it's also about the Gentiles, both. There's kind of twofold thing going on here. Jesus goes on, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slanger, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Nothing he said here, again, is foreign to the Jewish understanding. They can look at the laws and see that these are things God says are bad, right? They, they understand that immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, the rest of that, that that's bad. Those are bad things. They also understand that what you eat isn't really where that comes from. It's not like if you eat the wrong kind of food, then you got some malice. And you eat a little more of the wrong kind of food, now you got some immorality in you. And then you eat the wrong food, now you got some theft. They, they really understood that. They were never sort of that clueless about things. They knew that that came from inside their own struggles and desires, right? But, but these importance of these things, the importance of these laws were being obscured by these traditions 
not even necessarily laws, but by these traditions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even the apostles themselves were sort of fond of, um, these traditions of cleanness and uncleanness. And I think Jesus just wants to be clear, look, this is, this is what's bad about humanity. And that is not something that you get by being in the wrong place or eating the wrong food or touching the wrong people or doing the wrong things. That comes from inside you. That's where it comes. And, and Jesus says, do you get it now? You know, they're like, explain the parable. He's like, well, let me be really clear. And he just kind of lays it out to them again. So I'm saying to Mark, let me read the story again in Matthew, and then I'll open it up to any, any comments or thoughts you guys have. Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Therefore, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. What comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So this is interesting. Matthew records that at the end of this conversation, the apostles come to him, and I love this question. They say, do you know the Pharisees were really offended by this? Now, can you tell me the last story where the Pharisees said something and Jesus said something and the apostles felt it necessary to defend the Pharisees' honor? Can anybody tell me when that happened? No, because it didn't. <laughs> They have never been concerned about the Pharisees being offended. So I think it's clearly that they are offended, but they're like trying to get more information by pushing it off on the Pharisees. Ooh, those Pharisees really didn't like what you, we get it, Jesus, but those Pharisees, they had a lot of problem with what you said. Um, and he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. I think the way to kind of see Mark and Matthew together here is they ask, you know, explain the parable. He's like, it's not a parable. It's straightforward. And then they're probably like, well, the Pharisees really don't like that. And he's like, well, tell you what, let's not worry about the Pharisees. If the Pharisees are really serving God, if they're really honoring God, they'll be fine. They'll hear what I'm saying. They'll learn from it. They'll, they'll grow and they'll be totally cool. But if they're not from me, if their authority has never been from God, which is a, a deep question for many of the Pharisees, if their authority has really never been from God, then they're not going to survive this. They will be uprooted. They will lose their place. And it will, they will prove themselves to simply be blind themselves. So don't worry about the fact that the Pharisees don't like what I said, because guess what? They're blind. They actually don't know what's right. So you can follow them, but the blind are simply going to lead the blind into a pit. So don't worry about that. If they're offended, they're offended. If they're not offended and they learn, then they're then they're not blind. You know, he's just kind of saying they'll they'll it'll all shuffle out. You don't have to worry about them. I don't think they really were, but he's again just honoring them by answering what they said. Peter said, "Explain the parable to us." Oh, I guess it was the other way around. So they first they say the Pharisees were offended, then they say explain it to us. Peter said, "Explain the parable to us." Well, if it's that way, God, then we don't understand either. Um, are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? But things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Okay.
pretty clearly laid out. And then it's interesting. I don't, it's one of those moments where, you know, Jesus has shown throughout the course of his ministry that he disciples in a responsive way. In other words, a lot of times, whatever the disciples are wrestling with, that sort of dictates his next movement or his next sermon. Um, they'll bring something up, they'll argue with each other about who's greatest, and so he'll start talking about humility, for example. And, and in this case, it's interesting, this is the discussion that they're having, and the very next thing Jesus does is march towards Gentile territory. Um, now, maybe that was his plan already, but it is fascinating to me that right after this discussion about, you know, what, what defiles a person are these things from inside, but not eating with unwashed hands and not eating with unwashed people, I think is also kind of there, you know, not rubbing shoulders with him. That doesn't defile you. Right after this discussion about cleanness and uncleanness, he's pushing the envelope, he's challenging the traditions, he's offending the Pharisees and confusing the apostles. Right after that, he heads into Gentile territory. He heads toward what's called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis is a Roman word. It means 10 and it means 10 cities. And these 10 cities are Roman cities. Now, they are, they are like a lot of places around this area. They are mixed. They do have Jews within these Roman cities. But they are very Roman in nature or Hellenistic because Greek and Roman are kind of inseparable at this point. But they're very Hellenistic and Roman in nature. And, and there's a lot of tension in these areas between the Jews and the Romans. The Romans consider circumcision a barbaric practice, uh, literally barbaric. They can, they, it's like these people are too stupid and they don't know better. So they really kind of see the Jews as unclean because of this circumcision practice. The Jews, in defense, then, really cling to their traditions in the Decapolis, the, the ones that are there, and, and, and have a lot of friction with the Romans that are there. But it's Gentile territory. It's, it's definitely seen as Gentile territory. The Jews who live there live there because they have to for commerce and economy and because that's where they are, and it's not always easy to move. Um, but this is where he heads. Right after this discussion, he's like, let's go, let's go rub shoulders with Gentiles. And along the way, he's going to teach some lessons. He's going to very specifically do a couple of things, which I think are intended very much to say to the apostles, what do you think? How should we think about these Gentiles? How should we treat them? No, think about everything we've talked about so far. Think about everything you've seen in my life. Think about what it means that what's inside a person defiles you, not what's not what on the outside. Think about all that. Now let me ask you, friends, apostles, you know, disciples, children, what should we think about the Gentiles? So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, before we jump into that, anybody have any comments on uh, this little story we've read so far? Well, I was just thinking too about, and you were talking earlier about how we kind of do the same thing and like, you know, put traditions like above things and yeah. And, um, and we do do that and not that we do it any better, but I was just even kind of thinking how, you know, he's being like really clear and he's been like really clear through this whole like time, but then even just later, you know, with like Peter and with the animals and then like with circumcision later, you know, and that whole big thing and stuff like that and just how, and we're the same way, but just that, you know, how like, yeah, how God just keeps like kind of pursuing it and, and picking on it and stuff and too and they need to see um as we do too that they are like they aren't clean they're like desperately like hopeless without like him especially coming to the end of his life and stuff like that on earth yeah that's really good yeah you make some excellent points 
and we will see in the book of Acts when we get there that this is kind of a lifelong struggle for Peter. You know, some convictions are hard to shed, convictions based on traditions. You know, I think I think saying they're traditions doesn't mean they aren't deeply felt. And for Peter, I think the cleanness thing is, is a hard thing for him to shed. Not only does he have this vision, which should have made it super clear to him, but then later we're told that Paul has to reprove Peter again for refusing to eat with Gentiles. And so it, I think it's something Peter just struggles with. As, as faithful as he is, as, as I think new and open as he is in the book of Acts, which he is, he's a, a much better sort of version of himself than he is in the Gospels. And he's not bad in the Gospels, but I think we see he's changed. But even there, this is a conviction that's hard for him to, to let go. I think you're right. We do see it throughout. And then you're right, the letters. Well, come- I think it, I mean, that and circumcision, I think would be, I mean, I think, some of the Pharisees do seem to have ulterior motives, but I mean, in general for like a lot of like Jews and stuff, because that was like their connection to God and then to totally see it like, yeah, differently is yeah. No, I think that's hard. Right. I think that's right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm in a, um, a unique position with my church, so I can poke at something that it's not fair. I have my own traditions that I have a hard time letting go of that I don't even see, I'm sure. But I was just going to mention, I think even Sunday morning, even the idea that church has to be about the Sunday morning worship service, that's very hard for some people to consider that might not be what it is, um, to the point where to them, if you're not going to church on Sunday morning, there's no way that you're engaged in a community of believers, which in Focus Church, we just know that isn't true. You can still be engaged, um, doesn't have to look like that. And so I think that's an example that's, again, unfairly easier for me to see because I'm not in the midst of it. Um, but I think that's right. We all have those that are, they're, they're, they're very deeply felt, and it's just hard for us to kind of move on from them. I agree. All right, well, let's press on. Mark 7, 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. So here we go. He's headed into Gentile territory. Tyre is absolutely Gentile territory. It's not even very popular. I mean, it's it has a history, right? You might remember Tyre from the Old Testament. It's a history of not being a great place in its treatment of Jews. So they, they move off. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He, wanted, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. We, we still have this, and again, maybe some of this is because he's still trying to get some downtime. Maybe some of it is just because he's trying to keep the, the you know, this this fervor, which is just going to erupt on Palm Sunday, he's trying to keep a lid on it because we're just not quite there yet. He's not ready to kind of have this final push of, am I king? Am I not king? I'm going to ride in on a donkey. We'll, we'll get there on Palm Sunday, but he's not there yet. And so he's trying to get into a house quietly, but the paparazzi finds him. Um, says, in fact, uh, but he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. All right, I love this. Mark introduces this and, and gives us as many images of this woman being unclean as possible, right? The problem that she has is her daughter has an unclean spirit. She herself is a Greek uh, and 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 like super Greek, <laughs> not like a God-fearing Greek living near the Jews, but a Greek from Syrian Phoenicia. So this is, here we have it. Here, here's an example. This is as unclean as it gets. This is an unclean woman with an unclean problem. This is an embarrassment to bring to Jesus. This is not something the apostles will feel comfortable about. Remember that even with the Samaritan woman, who is, to be fair, of the same heritage of the Jews, this is a Samaritan woman's not a Gentile. A Samaritan woman still comes from Jewish family. 
um, they were uncomfortable with him talking to her. And he was able to ease them into that and show them that the Samaritans, you know, could could be reached in a sense. This is this is a step even further. This is the this is an unclean woman with an unclean problem, and she is coming to Jesus, and it's embarrassing to the apostles. And Jesus knows that. And so as we read this story, which is challenging in some ways, I think it's less challenging for us if you realize that what is about to unfold is Jesus teaching the apostles a lesson as well as being compassionate and teaching this woman a lesson at the same time. You may We'll, we'll talk about why his words look harsh, but might be compassionate. Um, but he's doing all this in a way which is which, which to us looks unduly harsh and might be, or I don't think it's unduly harsh. I think there's a reason for it, but it, but it looks harsh. Um, and so, but it's all about a lesson. It's all about teaching. But in the end, she does get what she wants. So I don't want you to miss, he is also being compassionate to her, but, but the, the, it'll help us understand why he does what he does if we remember the conversations he's had and that what he's doing is showing the apostles, he's reflecting back to them their own attitude. Um, I think in order to, do a couple of things, which we'll talk about in a second. So let's read the story. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. We we have two versions of these stories. So uh, as I talk through this, I may dip a little bit into the other story, and then you'll see it when we get there, There's because there's a little detail given that's not given here. It, she's begging Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter, and here's what it looks like. They're walking through this Gentile town. The apostles are already uncomfortable because they're entering Gentile territory, Jesus has been talking about cleanness and uncleanness. Their heads are spinning and reeling. And now this unclean woman comes and she is embarrassing herself and embarrassing the apostles. She's coming to this Jewish Messiah. She's begging him to get rid of this impure spirit from this Gentile daughter that she has. And it says in a, in a later gospel, it says that Jesus ignores her. So at first he doesn't do anything, but he doesn't say anything. It's like she just keeps coming. And I honestly think what he's doing, and I'll show you I think this later, but I think what he's doing is he's waiting. He's giving the apostles a chance to show what they feel first. In other words, there's room here for one of the apostles to say, hey, Jesus, this poor woman needs help. Would Why don't you help her? Right? They could do that. They could intercede on her behalf. And it wouldn't be the first time if you think about, and we'll get to this specifically later also, but think about the, the, the people that needed to be fed. They went to Jesus and said, these poor people need to be fed because they have, a, or they need to be, they need to be sent home so that they don't starve. They kind of interceded for them when they thought Jesus might not be alert. And that's what they could do here. They could say, hey, this woman is crying and begging you to help her. Why don't you just, can you just help her? But they don't because they're embarrassed because they mostly don't want him helping her, but they also don't want her coming after them. We're going to see a little conversation between the apostles and Jesus about that later. But I think that shows us that that's what's happening here. She's begging, Jesus is ignoring, and it's making them increasingly uncomfortable. It's putting pressure on them, and they're not responding to it the way that Jesus would really want them to, which is to intercede on her behalf. But they're watching, they're embarrassed, they're uncomfortable. She's unclean in so many ways, <laughs> and she needs to get away from them. And finally, Jesus turns to her and says, first, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So he turns to her and he says, essentially, you're not as important as the apostles. You're just not. So let me help them first. Let me feed the children of Israel. Let me feed the Jews first. And then when they've had enough, then we can toss it to the dogs. Now, 
it's not kind to equate anyone to a dog. And, it's, and this is not a kind statement. What it appears to be true historically is that this is an idiom. Now, that doesn't make it better, but I just want to point out what Jesus is saying is the words the apostles themselves are thinking. He's using an idiom which says that the Messiah will take care of the Jews first, and then if there's anything left over, the Gentiles may receive some blessing. Um, and, and he's using this idiom, and I think he's doing it to reflect back to the apostles what they sound like. Because it's one thing to say it in private, right? When you're a bunch of, bunch of, with a bunch of other Jews, you might say things like that. But to say it to the Gentile herself, even for the Jews, might feel, they might be like, well, that's kind of harsh, Jesus. You didn't have to say it to her that way. <laughs> you didn't have to call her a dog. But he's, he's reflecting it back to her. Then she says, and this is impressive, and we're going to get to this in a second. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She says, that's fine. Call me a dog. I'll be a dog. But, but even the dogs get the crumbs. Let me have some of the crumbs now. And Jesus said, then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. All right. So what's happening here? Why is Jesus being kind of mean? And then, and then giving it to her at the end. And why is he lauding her reply, which sounds sort of demeaning even to her? So let's talk a little bit about it. Then we'll read the next story, which will, I think, emphasize this. So here's the thing. Her answer, as far as he says your reply, it's not just that he's impressed by her ability to play the game. It is impressive, by the way. She she plays the game like a Jew. I mean, she understands this back and forth that is often the way Jews learn. And she plays it well and she wins it. That's actually really important. We'll talk about that in a second. But what Jesus is impressed by is that she is convinced, despite Jesus's harsh words to her, she is somehow convinced that he is the kind of man who will heal her. That whether it's theologically right, whether it's what everybody expects, whether tradition says that he should be healing Gentiles or not, she's probably heard about other Gentile healings is done, who knows, but she is convinced he is the kind of man who will do it. And I think that's what Jesus is applauding. He's saying, you, you do have faith. You have faith in me that I, am, that I am the kind of person that actually will heal your daughter. My apostles are not so sure I'm that kind of person. If they'd known I was that kind of person for sure, they would have interceded for you. They would have made the arguments that you had to make, but they didn't make them. You're making them, and I applaud you for your faith. It's, it's a little bit like saying of the centurion, which he did at one point, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. He is a little bit saying, you made the argument the apostles should have made. You are showing greater faith than they did in who I am in who I am and the kind of person that I am. Um, so I think there's actually three reasons. So, so here's the question though. You're like, why didn't Jesus just at the outset say, look, apostles, you're wrong. You're, you're wrong about the way you think about Gentiles. You know, I know you've heard this idiom, you know, give the dogs after you've fed the children, give the dogs what's left. I know you've heard that idiom, but that's just wrong. This Gentile woman is as worthy and valuable as you are, and she deserves my attention, and her daughter deserves to be healed as much as yours does. Your guys are just wrong. Why didn't he just say that at the outset? Why go through this game with her where he sounds harsh, and he has this debate with her, and then he lets her win this debate, or he shows that she won the debate by giving her what she wants? And I actually think there's three reasons for the harshness, and three reasons he plays the game this way instead of being more clear at the beginning. Number one, and not the most important, but I think it's there, is shock value. He's trying to get the apostles' attention. And as I said, by reflecting back to them what they look like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I have, where, where I've been like, 
unduly harsh with my kids or or made a face and not really been aware of what I looked like or what I sounded like. And then something has reminded me, like literally I've seen myself in a mirror or or I've even seen videos, you know, of home videos of myself, or I've, I've seen a look on my child or my wife's face that, that kind of showed my face was a lot sterner than I meant it to be. Sometimes you see yourself reflected back and you realize in a new way, oh, wow, I had no idea that's who I was at that moment. I had no idea. And I think that's what Jesus is doing to them. So on one level, it's a shock value. He's showing them, this is, this is what you guys sound like. Now watch me say it to this woman. But I don't think that's the most important reason. I don't think that would be enough. Here's the second reason. And I think this is the, the brilliance. I think this is, the, this is Jesus, the, the incredible teacher that he is. The ability that Jesus has to make points in especially strong ways is this. See, Jesus could have just affirmed her value himself, and that would have been something. It would have been a lot. He did that with the woman who was bleeding, right? He could have just affirmed her value and, and said to the apostles, you're just wrong, and said to the woman, they're just wrong. And that would have been, that would have been good. And in other cases, he would have done that. But I think the reason he doesn't do it this time is because what he does is even more shocking and revelatory to the to the apostles in this sense. What he does is he engages in theological instruction with her. See, this little back and forth, this is what Jews do. They do it in the synagogue. And what happens is the smartest and most righteous person always wins these debates. Well, who won this debate? She did. <laughs> I think what Jesus is doing is letting her win, showing her win, not even just letting her win, setting her up to show that she has the faith and the understanding and the wisdom of any of his apostles. So in one sense, he could have he could have told the apostles they were wrong. He could have told her she was right and they were wrong. And the apostles would have been ch chastened and they would have been like, okay, we get it. But Jesus is the guy who teaches us these things. That's all appropriate. But instead what he does is he plays the apostle and in her answer being so good, and him affirming her answer, and even using the phrase, because of your reply, which I think he does, rather than saying because of your faith, because he wants the apostles to focus on her reply, he says, because of your reply, I'll do it. What he's showing the apostles is, this woman just taught me and you. Now, we know she didn't really teach Jesus. He already knew this. But he's, he's, he's role-playing it for their purpose, and he's letting her teach them. So he's saying, this woman just taught you and she just she just schooled you. And in a sense, she schooled me, and I'm okay with that. I'm not getting all bent out of shape about it. That is a much more impressive lesson to them of her value and worth. To actually let her have the upper hand is a bigger way of showing how valuable she is, how equal she is, how clean or unclean she is in relationship to them, to let her engage in the debate like a Jew and then win the debate like a really smart Jew I think is a much stronger lesson to them. They watch what happened and go, whoa, Jesus just, just lost. Jesus just, just let her win this argument. And I think they're smart enough to know Jesus didn't change his mind, but he's making a point. And the point he's making is we should have treated her like we treat ourselves, like we treat each other. We should have given her that dignity and that respect. And Jesus gave her that respect by not just telling us who she was, but letting her show us who she was, by not just teaching us that she deserved her daughter to be healed as much as we do, but by letting her teach us that she deserved her daughter to be healed. I think that's kind of the brilliance of this. And I think that explains why he sort of runs her through this game, which seems cruel, 
it's not cruel. It ends up letting her feel affirmed. And I'm assuming he knows the heart and knows even for her that she feels that way. She's like, ha, I am vindicated. I said this and I was vindicated. And so it's even affirming to her. But mostly here, the apostles are really learning something. There is a third reason, and I think we see that in Matthew. But let's finish the story here, and then we'll we'll go into Matthew and see a little bit more detail, um, and then we'll uh, and then I'll take your guys' thoughts as well. Says so she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. It's important and relevant that Jesus didn't lie to her. I don't think any of us thought he would, but it's good to see the conclusion of the story is in fact that what he said is true. He had healed her her daughter. So Matthew says it this way. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. This is where I said he kind of ignores her at first. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him. Do they say, help her, heal her? No, they say, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. So notice that. Again, he's forcing the apostles to respond but the response isn't, hey, she's really desperate. Could you help her? <laughs> Which seems human. <laughs> but again, their traditions about cleanness and uncleanness are so strong that when Jesus doesn't respond, when he doesn't sort of encourage their better natures, when he doesn't give them permission to go outside the traditions in a sense, although he's already given them that in his words, when he doesn't do that, their default is she's embarrassing us. She's crying out after us send her away. Send her away in her misery. Send her away unanswered. Send her away without helping her. This is their exhortation to Jesus. And then Jesus has this discussion with them. And it says, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, again, even here, I don't think this is him saying to them, yeah, you're right, we should send her away. I'm not going to help her. I think this is him sort of nodding like, oh, I, I know why you're saying that, right? That's right. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, right? He's he's giving them the theological answer. And notice how much gentler this is, by the way. This is not dogs and crumbs and children. This is just the straight theology. They're like, send her away. And he's like, well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, which I don't think is what Jesus believes. It's not what we've seen elsewhere. But I think he's, again, he's parroting their theology. He's having this discussion with them privately. And he's saying, this is where this is where we are, right? But even having said that to them, he doesn't send her away. They say, send her away. He turns to them and says, well, she's crying out for us, but I'm sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. And he keeps walking. Says the woman came and knelt before him. So finally she comes, she kneels in front of him. Lord, help me, she said. And now is when he says, he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So he's, he's already sort of said this to the apostles. They probably all nodded in approval. That's right. You're only here for the lost sheep. Then he says it much less gently to her. And they're probably like, ah, that's, was it really necessary to say it that way? <laughs> and so again, kind of provoking them. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Here in Matthew, Matthew even shows her actually disagreeing with him, not just signing in, but he says, it isn't right. And she says, yes, it is. Yes, it is, Lord. I'm arguing with you and calling you Lord at the same time. Pretty interesting. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. So in Matthew, the words are, you have great faith. In Mark, the words are, because of your reply. I think the reality is he said both. Because of your reply is for the apostles. So they're like, wow, she taught him. She taught us. She persuaded him. Wow, she she did it. She did better than we did. You, you have great faith is for her. 
that, yeah, you see who I am and you know who I am and understand your request is granted. Your faith is in me and that I am the kind of person who will take care of you, even though all the theology of the Messiah says I shouldn't and, and that it's wrong to do so. You said it is right for me to do so and you are right. And then Matthew goes on to tell us her daughter was healed at that moment. So, which again, not a big surprise, but there it is. So there's those two stories. I love the, I, I, the story is challenging, but I actually really like it as a picture of Jesus being humble enough to have an argument in front of the apostles and let her be the teacher that wins. Let her correct him and let them all see that. Again, everybody knows Jesus wasn't mistaken, but the, but his willingness to do this, to take the role of, to role play the apostles position and then be corrected really is very challenging to them on all sorts of levels. One, that Jesus is that humble, willing to take that position. And number two, that 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 Jesus is letting her correct them rather than Jesus doing it himself. Do you guys have any thoughts or comments on that, on that story? Well, I was just thinking, and maybe they just didn't bring it out in this, but it didn't seem like the disciples like kind of made a fuss when Jesus healed um, that one guy and drove the spirits into the pigs. I don't think he gave them a chance, right? I don't think he gave okay. them an opportunity to respond to that. I think you're right. They've seen Do him. Do you think it was just like situational? I think they've seen him heal other Gentiles. I think Jesus is pushing the envelope now. And I think he's pushing the envelope in such a way that that he's he's requiring them to respond. And they're kind of failing at these tests. Um, and I think he just in the past yeah. did things and they weren't, they were just kind of watching and observing, but now they're having to actually process and kind of decide what they're going to do and and they haven't taken the appropriate lessons from those previous moments um and so you're right that they didn't they didn't say a lot just like they didn't say much about the samaritan woman but i think it's pretty clear that they're a little put out by the fact that that's who he's talking with when they come back yeah i was gonna say it would take a little bit more to actually like because jesus has been the initiator like so far for them right. to like initiate something but I mean, still for them to say, you should send her away. Yep. I mean, they're initiating negative stuff. So. Right. Yeah. I think he's silent specifically because he's giving them a chance to show where they're at. And unfortunately, where they're at is all that talk about cleanness, cleanness and uncleanness. Yeah, we still don't get it. Send her away. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. And, and by the way, he's going to push this lesson one more time. He's going to do it a little bit more gently, but he's going to do it again here in just a second. Well, uh, I was actually uh, thinking about when you were talking about this uh, a few minutes ago, that uh, as a parent, I do this. And as a, uh, as, as some of you know, I'm a substitute teacher. So as a substitute teacher, I do this too. There are a lot of times that I'll respond in a certain way to see if, you know, if, if whether it be my kids or the students are paying attention. <laughs> Hi. Speaking of which, there's Luke. But uh, but anyway, so uh, when you're talking about how he was like making this a teachable moment for the disciples, that kind of stood out to me that, yeah, that's actually one of the, you know, teaching methods is to purposely, you know, set the situation where, yep. where they have to kind of work it out. Yep. And I think it's also fair to note that just like you said, in your context, that makes sense. So when you do that, the kids understand, people understand, they kind of see what you're doing. Same is true here. 
you know, the Jewish world of, of teaching and, and discipler and disciple is very interactive, tends to be. There's a lot of argument, there's a lot of role play. So this kind of thing would resonate with them. They would, at the end of it, they would see it and go, oh yeah, yeah, we see what he was doing. He was showing us how stupid we are, in a sense. I mean, they, they would sort of, they would sort of see that, okay, that, that's what happened here. That's the way it works. And this woman, whoever she is, you know, she calls him Lord, she calls him son of David. She has a Jewish, she has an understanding of Jewish culture. Um, and even when she's like, you know, doesn't argue with him that she shouldn't get it. She does have an understanding of Jewish culture. So it, even she kind of gets the back and forth, which is why I think it's also not as harsh as it appears. I think she's she's in a position, she gets it. She's, she's a strong woman. She can take it and she's fine with it. Um, I think that's pretty clear um, that, that she's not afraid to have this back and forth with Jesus. And I think for her, it's very affirming. It's very validating. She had this back and forth and she went home and her daughter was healed. She's like, there you go. That's, that's the way it should be. So I, I, yeah, as a teaching style, it's totally acceptable that, that they would have seen that. They would have understood this is part of what it is to be his disciple. He does weird stuff sometimes. And in this case, he was showing us what we looked like and how wrong we were. And he was letting a woman of all, of all people, a Gentile woman teach us, which I think just is kind of mind blowing and probably was a struggle for many of them for a bit. Yeah, no, I'm really liking, like, I'm noticing as we're going through this, you know, again, this time that Jesus, yeah, is a lot more confrontational than, you know, I think I, like, used to know, but it's like, yeah, but it's really good, but yeah, it's just, like, so much more kind of alive and interactive, and he is, and it's necessary. Yeah, interactive is good. You know, I think it's because, you know, it's it's like it's like we it, our our version of Jesus is the red letter Jesus. It's just a bunch of quotes. You know, Jesus is a bunch of quotes and a bunch of theological statements. I think it sounds kind of trite, but when you actually read through them in the New Testament, it's all interactive. It's all responsive and interactive, and some of it's provocative, absolutely, um, and some of it is very assuring and comforting. And it he's very situational, to use a word you used earlier, Meredith. He's very situational. You know, where where he is, mm -hmm. what's going on, he he deals with it differently and. And um, and that's what you would expect, really. But but it's easy to forget that. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because yeah, because we'll take those terms like, oh yeah, you have to be born again, just like a normal right. thing. That's what everybody like says, you know. Right. Right. And just like, yeah, we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> Isn't that what you like normally do with people? Yep. You know. <laughs> yep. You're right. You're right. They've become lodged in our brain, and they've lost their punch in a sense. Yeah. So we're about to come to something that's familiar, but I want to ask you how it's different from what we've seen before, but let's read it and then I'll ask the question. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So he's just going deeper and deeper into Gentile territory, really is the way to see this. Um, there are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit on and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, F I have no idea how to pronounce E-P-H-P-H-A-T-H-A, but I'll give it a shot. Ephatha. I don't know what P-H-P-H is. Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Actually, this is not where I thought we were, but I'll ask this question. Jesus never heals the same, but Jesus very rarely heals the same way twice. Sometimes he just says, go home, they're healed like he did. So sometimes that happens. But when he's interacting with people, 
the mechanism of his healings is often different. You know, sometimes a woman touches his robe. Sometimes he simply says, be healed. Sometimes he lays hands on them. It's, it's very different. He varies the way he does it. What are some things you notice about the way he heals this particular, probably a Gentile, by the way, it doesn't say that, but probably. Um, what, what, do you, what do you notice about the way he heals this deaf and dumb man? Anything distinct and why do you suppose he does it this way? Well, I mean, it wouldn't exactly be kosher, according to the Jews, the way that he's healing him. Yeah, that's the thing I noticed. It's very touchy, isn't it? I mean, it's really, it's disturbingly touchy. He's like putting his fingers in his ears. He doesn't have to do that. What is that all about? He, he's just usually like be healed. Puts his fingers in his ears, touches, spits on and touches the man's tongue. I don't know what that means exactly, but spitting on someone's tongue is gross. Touching his tongue with whatever you're touching his tongue with, your fingers, I guess, is gross. Um, th this whole thing is intimate touching, but... Think about how much more shocking it is if this is an unclean Gentile. So he's not only engaging with this Gentile to heal him in a way which is intimate, but if he's a Gentile and if he's unclean, he's doing it in a way which is intimate and vulnerable and right in his face. I mean, he's, he's getting about as close to uncleanness as he can get. And then on top of that, he has this deep sigh. So he's, he's also emotionally vulnerable and he speaks and he says, be opened. And I, I love this because here's this guy that's deaf and dumb, and he's been talking to the, to the, the apostles about cleanness and uncleanness. And then he comes to this guy and he does all these things that seem really unclean. <laughs> and then he sighs. And then he says these words, which could apply to the apostles as much as they apply to this deaf man. You know, listen up, be opened. Are you guys getting it yet? Are you hearing me yet? Stop closing me off. Stop cutting me off. So I just think the whole thing again it's healing the man, but the way he does it is again a demonstration for the apostles that you know your whole picture of cleanness needs to needs to undergo some transformation here. Um, so that's that's why I, I think that's why he kind of goes about it the way he does because this is pretty unusual. There's I can't think of anybody else where he's quite this touchy. You know, there's a I guess there's a now I'm trying to remember Elijah laid upon a dead boy three times. That's pretty intimate. But I don't know if Jesus even is described doing that in any of his resurrections. I don't think so. I think his resurrections were, I think to one girl, he just kind of said, get up. <laughs> and, and to uh, Lazarus. He, he did touch the boy. Did he? I couldn't remember for sure. Yeah. Like at the beginning, like the, the widow's son. I believe you. I'm I, pretty sure. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I just remember because I think we talked about how, you know, he's taught touching a dead body. Right. Makes sense. And some of the example there would be similar. That's true. That he's, he's, he's not afraid of the uncleanness that exists. Cool. But even this is like, like kind of gross to our standards. I mean, it is Jesus. So you kind of don't want to say anything, but <laughs> I mean, I guess I would be okay with Jesus doing that, but anybody else is I like, mean, that's really gross. Where's your mask, Jesus? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I hear you. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. This is the recurring theme too. He's trying to keep a lid on things, but it's just getting bigger and bigger. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Matthew 15 just gives us kind of a summary. It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down and great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others and laid them at his feet and he healed them. 
And the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. I think this phrasing, they praised the God of Israel, is because many of the people that are praising him are Greeks, are Gentiles. So they know him as the God of Israel, not just God, but Israel's God. Um, and so I think that's, again, reminding us where he is. He's in this, this place. Now, we're going to wrap up here because it's almost 8.30, but I do want to get to this last story. This is where I thought we were a second ago. I forgot about the deaf man. So um, let me read this, and then I have a question, and, and this will be our last thing for tonight. So Mark 8, 1 through 10. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Okay, this is the healing of the, of the crowd again. Well, not the healing, the feeding. This is the feeding of the large crowd again. Okay, it's a second story. It's clearly a different story because it's different context. But I want you to tell me, I'm going to read through it, and I want you to tell me the differences you note. What's different? And then we'll talk about why that might be, because I think there's another important lesson going on here for the apostles. So let's let's talk about what's different compared to the when he did this on the Jewish side of the river, so to speak. Okay, so here we go. During these days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. That's kind of crazy. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he'd sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, I'm going to read this again in Matthew, and then we'll talk about it. Jesus called his disciples, said to them, to, called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadon. Okay, so what, what are the differences you note between this and the other feeding of the 5,000? Well, first, Jesus um, talks to the disciples instead of who brings the problem to this, tells the disciples about the problem instead of the disciples telling him about the problem. That's really good. And I think that's really important. And we'll talk about why in a second. That's good. What other differences do you guys notice? Well, there's more bread. So I assume it was like way easier, right? <laughs> Really? It's easier to feed 4,000 people with seven loaves than it is to feed 5,000 people with five loaves? Yeah. I think well, and a few fish. <laughs> but yes, there's they're not the same number of uh, of loaves. It's good. What else do you notice? Anybody else? Well, I mean, along with him bringing it up to the disciples, he's presenting them like with the problem too, like, I have compassion, I am concerned about them. Yeah, you're hitting on, on a big point, and I do want to want to come back to that in a second. What else? It seems like maybe 
the bread and the fish come directly from the disciples, or we just have less clarity in this case than the last one where that came from. That is absolutely correct. I agree with you. And I think that is also a relevant point, which we'll get to in a second. Well, in the other one, it was, yeah, well, from the boy. From a little boy, right? Yeah. Yep. And you're right, ostensibly it could be they they took it from a little boy and gave it to him, but it's really clear in the other passage. And here he directly asked them, what do you have? So I think you're right, Lori, and I think this comes from the disciples. Good. You know, it's it has a little bit of a different feel. I don't know if it is, but in this one, it sounds like people have come from a long way and stuff have just and have just been staying there. Um, I don't know, I guess maybe he's healing them and stuff, but the other time the people were there just, it seemed like they're for like the free meal. I guess it could still be the same thing well, here. I think you are hitting on something that comes up in three, we see it in three different ways. The apostles call this a remote place, which they don't say specifically about the other place. They do say in the other one, they have a long way to go and it's almost nighttime. And their long way to go seems to mean it's going to take them a couple hours to get home. Here, though, it talks about a remote place. It says it's been three days <laughs> since they've had anything significant to eat and that they've come a long way and it's remote. I think the idea is this is this could be days travel for some of them. I do think you get a sense that this is a lot further for some of them. It's more remote than it was last time. I don't know what that tells us necessarily, except it is just a contextual difference. The only other thing, well, look, yeah, go ahead. I say, well, it could tell us that they like really wanted to be there because otherwise sure. they would, if they were just going for a free meal, I mean, they probably would have left like a day or two ago. Yeah, maybe they're more willing to make the journey. That could be, that's, that's possible. Well, it even the fact that they're staying there. It could be that he's outside of the Decapolis, which is 10 cities, and it's just that people are coming from all 10 of those cities. And so there's just more, okay. more populace to come. I don't I don't know. Okay, here's the only other thing I noticed in this last one. I, the, the first two you guys mentioned, I think, are really relevant, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, the, the fact that they get it from the disciples and not from the little boy, and the fact that Jesus approaches them instead of the other way around. I think those are really key. The last one, I don't know if it's key, and it may be irrelevant, but it's interesting when they had fewer loaves and fish and they fed all of the Jews, they ended up with 12 basketfuls of bread, which is exactly one basketful per disciple. In this case, they start with seven loaves and they only end up with seven basketfuls. So it's not exactly one per disciple and, and, it's, and it's more related to what they started with. I don't know if that's relevant, except as it ties into what I'm going to share, maybe it is barely relevant. So here's the thing that's fascinating. Jesus has been pushing. We just saw this story with the Gentile woman where he waited. He waited for the apostles to say, to, to, to be compassionate, to be compassionate for this woman. He gave them an opportunity to come to him and say, we feel compassion for this woman. Will you please help her? And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And then he gave them this demonstration where he was compassionate to her. He's kind of increasing their permission to be compassionate. Now we're at a place where the scenario is exactly, the, I mean, not exactly the same. They may be further away. There may be, there's slightly fewer people, whatever, but a scenario which is surprisingly similar to one the apostles have been at before. And in the one the apostles were at before, they came to Jesus with compassion. They came to him and said, we have compassion on these people and we're afraid that they need to eat. You should send them home so that they aren't, you know, we're just feeling bad for them that they have a long way to travel. Here, it's been three days 
And not a single apostle has come to Jesus and expressed compassion for this crowd in the same way that they did when it was a Jewish crowd. So I think here again, we're seeing an example where their compassion for Gentiles is frankly not as great as their compassion for Jews. And, and Jesus is kind of giving them a chance, and they don't. And now, instead of the sort of the, the shock lesson that he gave them with the woman, now he's going to give them a really compassionate and gentle rebuke. And his compassionate and gentle rebuke is that he's going to come to them and say, I have compassion for these people. <laughs> I think even the way he says that is interesting. He doesn't just say, hey, we should feed them. He says, I have compassion for these people. It's like he is giving them permission to have compassion. He's saying, as your rabbi, as your discipler, as your leader, as your spiritual mentor and guru, I want you to know that these Gentiles, I have the same compassion for them that you had when we were in the same situation with the Jews. And I think we should feed them. And then they say, but where are we going to get food for them? And this is interesting. In the last one, it's like the disciples didn't even have food, right? Because they had to go to a little boy to get the food. In this case, though, the disciples actually have food. <laughs> They're not concerned about food for themselves. And Jesus sort of directs it at them. He says, what do you have? And they say, well, we have seven loaves. And then he takes the seven loaves and he feeds them. And then what they get is seven basketfuls back. And here's what I wonder about that. I wonder if they had more than seven loaves. I wonder if they just didn't want to give all their bread up because their compassion is less for the Gentiles than it is for the Jews. And the reason I say that is there is a principle that occurs throughout the Old Testament where God will challenge someone and basically will say to them, I'm going to provide for you, but I'm going to provide according to what you, what your faith is willing to give. And here's the examples I think of. There's a moment where God says to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to save you from this army by bringing, um, trying to remember the details. I think it's a flood. I'm going to save you from this army. I'm bringing a flood and I need you to dig trenches so that all the trenches will fill with water. And it says that basically they dig, dig a certain number of trenches and that's the amount of water they get. There's the widow with Elijah where Elijah says, bring all the pots you have in your house. And she brings all the pots and he fills them all with oil. And when all the pots are filled, there's no more oil. It's like sometimes exactly what you bring is exactly what God gives you in, you know, gives you is, is that's, that's what you're, that you're not really limiting him, but that's what he's working with. And it's possible, this is a little bit of, this is definitely speculative, but it's possible that he says, what do you have? And I can imagine Judas, you know, hiding a, a loaf of bread behind his back. You know, Judas doesn't like giving up his money. I, I can imagine him hiding a loaf of bread behind his back. And, and maybe they had 12 loaves and only seven of the apostles gave up their loaves. And so when they're done, they only get seven back. You know, they don't get 12 because they didn't give what they had. I don't know. That's speculative. I don't want to make a big theology of it. The only reason I mention it is it does reinforce what we already see in this passage, which is that Jesus is trying to expand, not just this passage, but the previous ones. Jesus is trying to expand their compassion for Gentiles. He's trying to remove this stigma of uncleanness so that they can learn and have permission to be compassionate. And he's pretty gentle here in this. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't chastise them. But by bringing it to their attention, he's showing them that we should be treating this crowd the same way we treated the Jewish crowd. And the fact that you didn't think of that in the last three days, that's a bit of a problem. My answer to that problem is to let you know that's not from me, says Jesus. I am not going to think of you weirdly if you're compassionate to a Gentile. I'm going to think it's the right place to be. And this really resonates with me. And I'll be really honest. One of the reasons it resonates with me is because as a pastor, there are expectations and there are pressures. And as I was growing up, I was a pastor at 22. So 
I've been through a lot of growth myself, and I've certainly had a lot of wrong ideas throughout the process in the last 35 years. I still do and just won't know what I'm wrong about now for another 30 years. But but I've had a lot of wrong thinking throughout the process. And one of the things is there's a lot of pressure as a 22-year-old evangelical pastor to there's permission that you seek when you're a young pastor of how am I supposed to react to people? How am I supposed to treat people? And I genuinely think that it's taken me time. It's taken me decades to get to a place where I realize that I have permission from God to be compassionate and loving to everybody. I think that nobody would have said it this way, but as a younger pastor, I felt awkward. I felt like there were times I wasn't supposed to be loving to someone if they didn't deserve it, or I wasn't supposed to be compassionate with someone if they were really on the wrong side of things. And I think that over time, I began to realize that that's just wrong. That's not Jesus telling me that. Jesus is giving me permission to be compassionate to everybody. Jesus is giving me permission to be loving to everybody. Again, what loving looks like, what compassion looks like, I'm not saying that's always a slam dunk. That can that can shift. Sometimes it's giving things, sometimes it's not giving things. That's not my point. My point is actually that that discomfort that I've had in my life about being compassionate to those that the culture around me said didn't deserve compassion. And I think that's how the Jews were feeling. The apostles were feeling. They weren't, so they have been trained all their life not to be compassionate to Gentiles. And here's Jesus giving them permission to be compassionate to Gentiles. And I think that's what this second feeding is all about. I think, why repeat this miracle? You know, I think he's doing it for the apostles and, and for the Gentiles. I mean, obviously they didn't need to eat, but, but I think he's doing it in a lot of ways for the apostles. And I think we see that in the way it's approached. I have compassion on these people. Let's feed them. Well, we can't do that. Well, what do you have? You know, making them be part of it. You, you need to be compassionate on these Gentiles. I don't want you to go to a, you were compassionate on the Jews. So it was fine. You got the bread from a boy because <laughs> you already felt it for them. But for the Gentiles, I want you to give because I want you to feel like you're helping them. I want you to feel the compassion for them. And that might also be why maybe only seven gave and only seven learned this lesson. I don't know. Um, but um, anyway, that's what I think. And that resonates with me. I, you know, I love the fact that Jesus gives us compassion to just love. He gives us, he gives us permission rather to just love and to give compassion. And, and, and it, it, you know, if, if the fact that I'm a pastor and this particular class leader, and I say to you, you have permission to love people that don't deserve to be loved. You have permission to show compassion to people that others around you in your culture may not think uh, you should show compassion to. We have a certain sort of cleanness and uncleanness in our own culture, right? We, 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 we sometimes see the marginalized. We wouldn't use the word unclean, but it comes pretty close. And I, and I think that, you know, you have permission. Now, that can be complicated, what it looks like. I'm not trying to give you pressure or guilt. I really am literally just trying to give you permission. You have permission to love people that other people around you might say you shouldn't love. And that's okay. You have the permission. That's what Jesus gives. Anyway, we'll wrap up there because that's 8.30. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.